Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more information about us, please visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. You know, throughout history, over the last 2,000 years, there have been these seasons, plural, seasons of reviving sent by the presence of the Lord, and we call these moves of God throughout church history revivals. So what actually is a revival? I think it's good to just be really clear. Like when we say things like revival, like what exactly is a revival? A revival in simple like theological terms, it's a massive acceleration of the kingdom of God. That's what revival is. The kingdom of God is always moving forward, always progressing. You know, the rock cut not by human hands that struck the statue and grew to fill the whole earth. To take you all the way back to the Old Testament prophecies, that began when Jesus inaugurated the reign of of God, the kingdom of God on earth. And over the last 2,000 years, that has been growing and filling the earth. And that's an incredible thing. In a time of revival, the, the, the pace at which the kingdom of God is advancing in this world is accelerated massively. It's a massive acceleration of the kingdom of God. This is what we pray every day. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in the Lord's prayer, right? This is what we're longing for on earth as it is in heaven. In revival, it's a time when God just surges his will, his reign, his kingdom forward in this world, which I think is a pretty awesome thing. Um, Again, I do want to be clear. Jesus is always at work advancing the kingdom of God. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, as the scriptures tell us, and he's not getting up until all of his enemies have been made his footstool, okay? When Jesus gets up, so to speak, it's over, okay? But right now, he is by the Spirit, sending the Spirit out. He is advancing the kingdom of God in revivals. It is a massive sending out of the Spirit, so to speak. You could kind of say the normal seasons of Christianity. There's like an ebb and flow of the ocean's tide, right? And it's that's the normal way in which it is happening in times of revival that is overtaken by a tsunami. That is what a revival is. It destroys the works of the devil and it builds the kingdom of God in an incredible accelerated manner. There are three outcomes of all revivals. In every revival, if you say that one of these is missing, I'll tell you it wasn't revival. All revivals have these three things. The out come in, and I think it's worth just drawing this so that it's very simple, but uh, we'll always be able to remember. And maybe I'll just kind of depict this. Not that the church is about the building, but, you know, just symbolic of the family of God. The out come in, the in go up, and the up go out. Either direction doesn't matter. Those three things always happen anytime the kingdom of God's advancing, but in revivals, the out come in, the in go up, and the up go out. The out coming in, we're talking about the lost being brought into the family of God, the household of God. In times of revival, uh, normal evangelism ceases, and it's completely different. Uh, Many church historians have said in times of normal Christianity, the believers are running out to try to bring the gospel to the lost. In a time of revival, the lost are running into the church saying, how can I be saved? It's hard for you to imagine that if you've never been in a season of revival. I haven't. I've only read about them. Um, But that is what has happened throughout church history. The, The outcome 
in, the end then come up. And this is talking about the actual reviving of the church, the believers. They're revived, they're lifted up. If you can picture the bride of Christ in between seasons of revival, what often happens is the bride gets sleepy. If you can imagine the bride laying in the ground, she's sleepy, um, her, her, her clothes are get, have been getting soiled over the years, and she is not bearing the name of Christ in a way that's bringing him a profound amount of glory. This often happens, and then God surges, and he revives his church. The bride is lifted up. She is always cleansed at the beginning of revival. She's dressed in white again. There's always a profound amount of conviction and confession and purification. But her, her first love for the Lord is restored. And so that's the in coming up, but then the up are sent out. In revivals, God empowers his people to go out to carry the Great Commission, to fulfill the Great Commission. Interestingly, in church history, even between revivals, often some of the greatest advancement of the kingdom was those who were brought in or up in the prior revival, and they were empowered with an anointing and um, often do great things uh, to advance the kingdom even in between them. So that's just kind of a definition of revival, okay? Uh, Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what I'm talking about when I say he empowers his people. How many of you would like to have more power to do God's mission in your life? I think that would be a good thing. How many of you would love to see the lost coming in in a way that is accelerated beyond what happens now? All of you know some people that you want to have in eternity with you, and you're like, oh, please, God. And how many of you would love to see yourself just be, be revived. You feel it inside of you. Yeah, like, uh, man, well, I need to be revived. I want to be revived by the presence of the Lord. How many of you would like to be personally revived by the presence of the Lord? Uh, the point is revival is a good thing. It is a good thing. And I'm talking to you about this because I am convinced that we are approaching the next great move of God. And I really do believe that it's time to get ready to prepare for the next great move of God. I believe that the Lord plans for Oklahoma City to have an epicenter in his next uh, great move of God, and so I want to talk to you about what it would look like to host a move of God, to be prepared for a move of God, to catch the wave, so to speak, and not miss the wave um, that I do believe is coming. Of course, you have to go to God and hear that for yourself, and that is a strong encouragement from me for you to do, is go and say, God, is this true? Are you, are, you, are you beginning to move, and are we on the, the brink of another great move of your spirit that accelerates your kingdom? If so, I really want to be there. I really want to be a part of it. I want to catch it. Um, as part of the, the path to get there today, I, um, I want to give you a survey of revival history, if that's okay. I'm going to share with you the 10 great global seasons of revival throughout church history. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to tell you a lot about each one of them. Um, there are many, many books about every single one of these. I'm just going to be giving you like a paragraph. But these are the 10 mass accelerations of the, of the kingdom of God where the out were brought in and the in were brought up and the up were sent out. The first, um, I do believe, was still the greatest, um, if for nothing else, for its longevity. It began around 30 A.D., 
uh, at an event called Pentecost, and it lasted for several hundred years, and um, largely uninterrupted, um, despite great attempts of evil to snuff it out. And it was the early church of Christianity overtook the greatest empire uh, in terms of power um, that the world had ever seen within just a couple hundred years. Very incredible. Um, unfortunately, if you're familiar with church history, you know that those fires um, of early Christianity did wane, and they waned um, significantly. Um, you could say as the light of Christ was put under a bowl, then emerged the Dark Ages, and they lasted a long time. Sadly, there is little in the history books that could be called a full-blown season of revival for a thousand years, which is tragic, um, but it's true. Not that God wasn't moving, um, but not in the same way that he was before and not in the same way he was after this period. With the union of government and religion, politics and Christianity, the lust for power invaded the church. All the real power actually went out of the church. The Bible was kept out of reach of the people. The abuses of true Christianity were profound in this era. Salvation by grace through faith alone was replaced with salvation by things that the church controlled. Isn't that convenient? From 1300, however, to 1500 A.D., these birth pangs of a restored Christianity began to knock on the womb of history. And guys like Huss and Savonarola, I always have a hard time saying his name, they emerged um, and began calling into question these gaps that existed between the Bible and the Christianity of Catholicism at the time. And they were killed by the church for calling into question those things. Um, however, when John Huss was taken to the stake and uh, burned alive, he prophesied before he died that in a hundred years, one would come along that they would not be able to reach. They wouldn't be able to squash him. And sure enough, a hundred years later, Martin Luther bursts on the scene. And with the Reformation, you must understand it wasn't just a return to believing right. It was a massive spiritual revival eclipsed only by the early uh, church uh, period of Christianity. Um, it was not just a theological reformation, as some people think it was, because that was so significant, but it was also a transformational, a spiritual revival as well, and it exploded all over the Christian world. It even led to the Catholic Counter-Reformation, uh, where so many were revived within Catholicism as well. The Reformation I am calling the second great global season of revival. Okay, you're tracking with me? All right, let's move on to number three. The third is what uh, we would call the first great awakening. I know it's confusing. I'm saying it's the third, but, you know, in history, this is called the first great awakening. It began with the Moravian revival. I'm sure many of you have heard about the Moravian revival because I saw 24-7 prayer out there, uh, which I'm so excited that you guys are doing as a church. And it started from this Moravian revival. Um, I shared a little bit about this uh, when I was here last time as a reminder the Moravians, there they were these Bohemian refugees, a guy named Count Zinzendorf, what a wonderful name. Um, he agreed to uh, allow these refugees to colonize on his own property in Hernhut, Germany. And what happened is they had this great utopic Christian, you know, 
dream of this Christian community that would be on his property. And what actually ended up happening is there was a lot of theological disputes and infighting, and it was just the opposite of what everyone dreamt it would be. And it led them to a point of desperation. Zinzendorf crafted up an agreement like, we're just going to focus on the essentials, and we're going to stop this, and we're going to seek the Lord, and, and we know what we need. We need what the early church had. We need our own Pentecost. We clearly are trying to do this, and we don't have enough of God's presence to do it. And so they went to the upper room, so to speak, and they began to pray and pray and pray. And long story short, the Spirit came so powerfully upon that community. Uh, those present said that they couldn't tell if they had been raptured up to heaven or if they were still on earth. The presence of God was so strong in their midst, and those revival fires burned bright for a hundred years. In fact, they started 24-7 prayer, kept it going for a hundred years straight. And that spark at the Moravians was the beginning of the first Great Awakening. So fast forward a few years, there's a number of these hardcore Christians in this club in um, England that they called the Holiness Club. Familiar names, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, they're in this Holiness Club, and um, they were ascetics, man. I mean, they were disciplined, like they were really, you know, trying to be good uh, Christians and all of this and do a lot of stuff for the Lord and they preached and they worked really hard and they witnessed everywhere they went but with no power and almost no fruit. It's very frustrating for them. Hardly anyone was converted by their ministry. Hardly anyone wanted to hear them talk. Um, the fruit seemed to resemble the fruit of Old Testament prophets more than you know New Testament uh, believers and basically what happened, um, John and Charles were very proud. You know, they were quite self-righteous in this early season of their life, um, almost too proud to learn from anybody else. Um, none of us know anyone like that, of course. Um, but they were almost too proud to learn from other people. They thought they knew it all. But they couldn't deny that there were these missionaries in town in London called the Moravian missionaries, and they had something different about them. And, frankly, a lot more fruit in their ministry as well. And so eventually, out of desperation, they caved and when invited by the Moravians to come to a Moravian all-night prayer gathering, they said, okay, we'll come. They go to the Moravian all-night uh, prayer gathering and in the middle of the night, power fell on them. It became known as the Methodist Pentecost. Uh, the Methodist denomination came out of John and Charles Wesley. Of course, it's not very much today like it was uh, as they founded it, and I'm not trying to make any statements there. Uh, but John Wesley writes about that night. He says, about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many people cried for exceeding joy. Many fell to the ground as soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and that amazement at the presence of his majesty. We broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. The power of God was so strong upon them as they went to minister after this, it began to startle the Church of England. The same guys that couldn't get a half dozen people to listen to him before suddenly had crowds coming around. It startled the Church of England, where there's a state church in England, uh, so much so that the Church of England kicked them out. It just freaked them out. You know, the same people who like the, the, the ocean when it's a normal tide don't like it when it creates a big wave, you know. Um, they liked the water before. They don't like the water when it's doing that, you know. And so that's basically what happened. They were kicked out of the Church of England, and they went to the streets and the fields, and they began to witness to people all over the countryside and everywhere. 
And this is how the first great awakening took off. The first great awakening. This happened in America as well with George Whitfield. Jonathan Edwards was a minister in Northampton, Massachusetts during the first great awakening. Here's a couple things of how he described what happened in his town during this uh, global season of reviving uh, sent by the presence of the Lord. He says this, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion, and they, he uses the term religion in a positive sense. I know we use it negatively now. About the great things of religion and the eternal world, they became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all ages. Already it's like, I can't imagine. All other talk, he says, but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. He's talking about the whole town, not just in church, folks. The minds of people were wonderfully taken off from the world. It was treated among us as a thing of very little consequence. The temptation now seemed to lie on the hand to neglect worldly affairs too much and to spend too much time in the immediate exercise of religion. He goes, that was the temptation in those days. Can we imagine that? Wow. And more, he says this, our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive. Mm -hmm. In God's service, everyone intent on the public worship, every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. I feel like you're that way right now. Uh, the assembly were in general from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrows and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. He also wrote this last thing on the first great awakening. He wrote that during this revival, illness nearly disappeared from the whole town. I mean, that's like Old Testament. Remember, like there wasn't anyone sick among them as they traveled with the glory and the presence of God uh, in the Exodus narrative. He says not, there was hardly any illness in the entire town during this period. He wrote in his book called A Faithful Narrative that although he did not see the disappearance of disease as evidence required to prove revival, he did feel it was necessary to acknowledge it. That's the first great awakening. Can you imagine? So that's the third global season of revival from the presence of the Lord. Let's quickly move on to the fourth. This great awakening that I'm calling the fourth, it doesn't really have a name. And it's um, not super well known. It went from the late 1700s to the early 1800s. Um, but the reason it's less known is not because there was less of God's power. Actually, quite the contrary. Um, maybe more of God's power than ever before, but it didn't have a face or a name of a leader that was easy to just summarize the whole movement by. It didn't have John Charles Wesley or George Whitfield. It was a nameless, faceless move of God. There was no Luther, no Wesley, no Whitfield. Its effects, however, were extraordinarily widespread. They gave a remarkable uh, move to world missions. Um, but if you want to research more, the Yorkshire Revival of 1791 and the Cane Ridge Revival of 1801 are the hallmarks of this season of reviving from the presence of the Lord. So that's the fourth. Here's the fifth, what we would call the second Great Awakening, the fifth great global move um, season of revival in church history. So we're 1821, okay? And a man named Charles Finney, he walks into a small church in upstate New York, and he attends their prayer meeting because he is a seeker, an explorer, um, a skeptic, and he wants to find out if this Christian thing is true or not. 
and going to the prayer meetings, eventually, you, you don't expect in a prayer meeting to kind of have the skeptic in the back corner, but um, eventually, they, some ladies work up the nerve. They go over to Charles Finney, like, well, could we pray for you? He's like, well, he's here. He's just acting strange back there. Let's go pray. And he goes, I suppose that I need prayer, but I don't think it would do any good because I've been here week after week after week after week after week hearing you praying on and on and on for revival, and you still don't have it. But he allows them to pray for him anyways. By the end of the week, he was saved. Shortly after he was saved, he writes in his book um, about the encounter he had with the presence of God. And the church says, would you come and share your testimony on Sunday night? So he goes and he shares his testimony on Sunday night. And then he just starts teaching and preaching. And for lack of better terms, the spirit breaks out and the service goes well past midnight. And they're like, could you come back tomorrow night and do this again? And he's like, I mean, he's a brand new Christian. Um, but he goes back the next night, does it again. Again, it goes past midnight. They're like, could you come back tomorrow night? Night after night after night, suddenly that church in Adams, New York, that had been praying for revival for a long, long time, they had revival. And isn't it ironic that the very man who's like, I don't believe Jesus is real because your prayers for revival aren't answered. He's the answer to their prayers. And the reason revival's being delayed is uh, perhaps waiting on him to accept God's initiation and call on his life. Um, quite fascinating. So God then uses Charles Finney to spread revival fires across the United States in what was known as the Second Great Awakening. Toward the end of the Second Great Awakening, 50,000 a week were coming to Christ. Now, you've got to adjust for population, okay? This is profound. There were many towns where not a single person remained unconverted or disinterested in Christ. Hard to imagine, right? Just absolutely incredible. Reminiscent of God's glory in the Old Testament, tabernacle, the glory of God was often so thick in the accounts of this revival, so thick in the room that people literally couldn't stand in the presence of the glory of God. It's absolutely incredible. This is the second great awakening, um, the fifth uh, global season of revival. Moving on to the sixth, the sixth, okay? So 1857, 1858 is where we are now. A man named Jeremiah Lamphere, okay? He actually was a convert of Finney. Um, he was a business guy in New York City, and he started to hold these noonday prayer meetings um, to pray for the lost. That was the intent. And so businessmen and women were invited to stop by in their lunch break and come in and pray. You wouldn't expect this to have profound impact. Within weeks, it had grown to tens of thousands of people coming to these prayer meetings. They had to keep multiplying them because God was just on it. Uh, anyone could take the mic and pray for someone who was lost. Their only rule is that no one could take the mic to pray for more than two minutes, or they would literally ring a bell on you, and you would have to get off the stage. You do need rules in prayer meetings, right? Um, within six months, they had 50,000 people in New York City praying, and the main emphasis was praying for the lost friends and family members. Within two years of him starting this, nearly a million new people came to Christ across the United States. Now, that is one-thirtieth of the United States population at that point in time, in just two years. Across the Atlantic Ocean, another million were won to Christ by 1865. This was in Britain's population of 27 million. Ulster saw 100,000 converted. Scotland, 30,000. Wales, 100,000. England, 500,000. The revival also swept all across the world, um, not just Europe, but uh, Western 
Russia, Australia, the South Sea, South Africa, Canada, and India all reported in seasons of revival during this, what I'm calling the six. Some people call it the layman's revival because um, it began with Jeremiah Lampfear leading a prayer meeting. Seventh, 1904 now, the Welsh revival. It began, it led to the seventh season of global reviving. This is often called the fourth great awakening. Um, I'm listing it as the seventh global move. Evan Roberts um, was a man who had been saying that God was about to move for some time. And a small group of people began to pray weekly. And then they began to pray multiple times a week. And that escalated to them praying every single day, asking God to pour out his spirit on their town. They just couldn't stand seeing so few young people at their church, but they were all at the bars and the nightclubs. And so they just began to pray. And they pled the promise of Isaiah 44.3, where God says, I will pour out water on dry and thirsty ground. They felt like it was a promise that God gave them that they could just go and knock on the doors of heaven uh, for revival for. Finally, after nights of prayer, there was a man who stood up and he said, God, do I not have clean hands? Do I not have a pure heart? Can I not ascend your hill and receive your blessing? And according to the count, he was yelling at this point. And at that moment, the building literally shook. According to thy witnesses, the spirit was poured out just as at Pentecost and revival began. In the following weeks, months, and years, 100,000 people came to Christ in that country, a small country at the time, and that revival spread all around the world. Even years after this, the police department of Glamorgan, um, one of the major towns, studied the rates of drunken incidents um, and said that they were still 50% lower than they were before the revival. The Azusa Street revival, the Goforth revival in China, the Belgian Congo revival of 1914 under C.T. Studd, India, the Korean revival of 1907, many other revivals in those years, all extensions of a river that was opened up over Wales to a few hungry, cost-paying believers. Absolutely incredible. You still with me? We're to number eight. The Lewis Island, or sometimes called the Revival of the Hebrides. This is 1948 to 1952. It led to the eighth great global season of revival. So you have following this trauma of World War II, spiritual life's at a low ebb in the Scottish uh, Hebrides. By 1949, two elderly women, 84 years old and 82 years old, their names were Peggy and Christine Smith. Interestingly enough, Donald Trump is a descendant of one of these two ladies. I can't remember which one. And I'm not making a political statement. I just do think it's so interesting. You have to point it out. Um, well, these two uh, elderly ladies, uh, one of whom was blind, if I remember right as well, they started praying constantly for revival in their own co cottage near Barvis Village on the Isle of Lewis, which is the largest of the Hebrides Islands in the bleak kind of northwest part of Scotland. Okay? So God showed Peggy in a dream that revival was coming. And then months later, early one winter's morning, as the sisters were praying, God gave them this unshakable conviction that, like, revival was very near. Peggy asked her minister, James Murray McKay, to call the church leaders together to pray. So three nights a week, the, later, the leaders began praying together, and they did this for months, praying for revival. One night, having begun to pray at 10 p.m., there was a young deacon from the free church. He read Psalm 24, challenged everyone to get clean before God. Within two weeks, um, Pastor Duncan Campbell came into town. There was a group of 30 people. They got together. They prayed all through the night for revival. 
And here's Duncan Campbell describing what happened that night as they were praying. God was beginning to move. The heavens were opening. We were there on our faces before God. Three o'clock in the morning came, and God swept in. About a dozen men and women lay prostrate on the floor, speechless. Something had happened. We knew that the forces of darkness were going to be driven back and men were going to be delivered. We left the cottage at 3 a.m. to discover men and women seeking God. I walked along a country road and found three men on their faces crying out to God for mercy. There was a light in every home. No one seemed to think of sleep. Now, when Duncan and his friends arrived uh, at the church that morning, it was already crowded. This is the next morning, all right? 3 a.m., boom, they get home, they come to the church in the morning, it's already crowded. People had gathered from all over the island, some coming in buses and vans. No one discovered who told them to come. God led them. Large numbers were converted as God's spirit convicted multitudes of sin. Many were lying prostrate, many weeping. After that amazing day in the church, Duncan pronounced the pronounced the benediction, but then a young man stood up and began to pray aloud, and he prayed for 45 minutes. Please don't do this unless you're really led by the Spirit, folks. Uh, 45 minutes. Again, the church filled again with people repenting, and the service continued until 4 a.m. the next morning before Duncan could pronounce the benediction again. He thought the service was over. It definitely was not over. Even then, he was still unable to go home to bed. As he was leaving the church, a messenger told him, Mr. Campbell, people are gathered at the police station from the other end of the parish, and they're in great spiritual distress. Can anyone here come along and pray with them? Imagine the presence of God coming upon Oklahoma City so much that people everywhere are in great spiritual distress because they're suddenly aware of their sin before God, and they're saying, how can I be saved? That's what was happening on Lewis Island. Campbell went and to that police station, uh, incredible sight uh, to behold. Um, obviously, it's the middle of the night, stars in the sky. He finds men and women on the road, others by the side of the cottage. Some are behind this peat stack. They're all just crying out to God for mercy. The revival had come. That went on for five weeks straight with services from early morning until late at night into the early hours of the morning. And then it started to spread to neighboring parishes. What had happened in Barvis was now repeated over and over and over again. Duncan Campbell said that the feature of the revival was the overwhelming sense of the presence of God. His sacred presence was everywhere, and this spread all around the world. Then in 1953, the Congo, the same thing happened, um, and the revival was stirred as people got together to pray, to confess their sins to one another, to share testimonies of how God had been at work in their lives. There were these other noteworthy moves of God in this season. Um, Argentina in 1948, 1952 in Brazil, they had to move to stadiums because the amount of people coming um, was so great. Billy Graham in the United States at this time, uh, New Zealand as well at this time. That's number eight. Now we're to number nine. Nine. Some of you were likely touched um, in some way, by this ninth move. Um, started at Asbury College, 1970. A revival broke out in Asbury, Wilmore, Kentucky, on Tuesday, the 3rd of February. And 
Suddenly, colleges around the nation were hearing about what was happening and asking students from Asbury to go and tell about what took place there. Everywhere they went and testified as to what God was doing at Asbury, it spread to those other colleges. The Jesus People Movement in 1971 was part of this season of revival. The Charismatic Renewal Movement abroad and within the Catholic Church, part of the same season. The revival hit many parts of Uh, Canada, Uh, Calvary Chapel movement and the Vineyard movements were born out of this as well. Anyone close to or on the fringe of being touched by that move of God in the 70s? A number of you were. Then came the revival of the 90s. Uh, The revival of the 90s um, primarily hit charismatic and Pentecostal circles, but also non-charismatic circles were uh, greatly affected by this move of God as well. In fact, you know, I was in a Southern Baptist church, which we would not consider Pentecostal or charismatic in any way, shape, or form, um, in the 90s, and man, our youth group was on fire, and I found that it was hard to find a youth group in the 90s that wasn't on fire, like God was just moving. It was a season of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Uh, the epicenters of this revival, uh, however, were Argentina, Toronto, and Brownsville, although there were hundreds, thousands of churches across the globe that were in uh, full-blown revival. Claudio Friedzen in 1992 in Argentina. Uh, revival's breaking out. They had to move into a stadium. They're filling a 65,000-seat stadium. He began to say to churches all over uh, Argentina, there is no method. We must seek the presence of God. It was kind of an abandoning of method and like, we need God's presence. It doesn't matter how crafty we get. Um, in 1989, Rodney Howard Brown from South Africa came to the United States. Many streams of the particular charismatic and Pentecostal revival in America um, kind of trace back to this guy, notably through Randy Clark, who received an impartation prayer um, from Rodney Howard Brown. He goes to Toronto, um, and Spirit of God begins to break out in this small church, just a few dozen people. That led to nightly revival meetings uh, lasting well over a decade. Over two and a half million people visited that church from around the world. Those fires spread to a church called Holy Trinity Brompton in London called HTB Today. Um, That's where the Alpha program came out of, um, has been the most effective evangelism tool in the history of Christianity since. Um, They uh, were touched by those revival fires and then enters a church called Brownsville in Pensacola, Florida. John Kilpatrick, the pastor at Brownsville Assembly of God, had been spending every Sunday night with his church for two and a half years praying for revival. He hears about God moving through through this. Hears about God moving through this man, an evangelist named Steve Hill. Steve Hill went to Holy Trinity Brompton and received prayer from Sandy Miller, who was the vicar, the pastor of Holy Trinity Brompton. And when Steve Hill received prayer, he said he felt a river of living water flowing through him. He had said he had no idea how dry he got. And then everywhere he went and ministered, all of a sudden God was moving in this really powerful way. He gets invited to Brownsville, Father's Day, 1995. He goes and speaks. The Spirit uh, moves in a powerful way, turns into another night, turns into another night, turns into another night, became six nights a week, lasting for five years, well over 100,000 salvations at that church alone and the most conservative counts. Uh, But those are the charismatic and Pentecostal streams. Um, But the non-charismatic and non-Pentecostal streams saw a movement of God as well in this season. Think back to promise keepers in the 90s. Can you imagine? It's hard to imagine men just filling stadiums and rededicating their lives. But when the Spirit of God moves, whether you're at the epicenter or on the fringes, people are being moved everywhere. And 
men were being moved in a powerful way in the 90s. A church called Coggins Avenue Baptist Church in Brownwood, Texas, um, in close association with Howard Payne University. They saw a great movement of God. In fact, Henry Blackaby went and spoke there February 13th through the 15th in 95. The testimonies that came out of that church ended up lighting these fires at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in the 90s. And these testimonies that just kept getting shared in various places and sparking prayer and confession and renewal including Wheaton College, the amount of, if you tried to touch all the little fingers of the fires of God whenever revival season are happening, you, you can't. There's not enough books to capture it all. Often it's just the places that are the most kind of large and notable. But those are the 10 moves of God um, over the course of church history to the best that I can summarize them. And the point of all this is that I believe another season of God reviving his church is right around the corner. And I believe God wants revival to come to this city. I believe that. 2019, I believe, is midnight. Meaning it's, it's time to wake up, get up, fill the lamps with oil, trim the wicks, if you're familiar with Parable of Ten Virgins or whatever, and like be ready, get ready. It's the year of getting ready. The question is, do you want revival here? Do you want revival here? Often, when revival comes to a church, there's people who go to a place that already has revival, and they're like, we want that here. Uh, We want that here. Do you want that here? I am telling you, in seasons that are non-seasons of revival, you can... You can have an open heaven. You can, you can have an increased move of the Spirit. But you're not going to have full revival in a non-season revival. In my view, looking at church history, it's like in these seasons, everyone who's willing to walk the revival road will be in revival. Those who are not will miss it to some degree or another. I don't want you to miss it, and I definitely don't want Oklahoma City to miss it. Do you want it here? If you want it, if you want more of him, you know, 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face, repent and turn from their wicked ways, then I might, oh, I will heal their land. I will. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to give us a chance to just respond to what you've heard. You just heard a quick synopsis of some of the greatest testimonies of what God's been doing over the last 2,000 years, a lot of which he's done in the last several hundred years. When I was praying, I was, I was just saying, God, what, what are you inviting this church to do in response to hearing about what, you, what you've done? And I could be wrong, of course, but what I think I heard him say is I want them to believe me for more and seek me for more. I want them to believe me for more. And I want them to seek me for more. And I'd like to give you a chance to just kind of weigh those two things. Could you believe him for more? There's two parts to believing God for more. The first is just the belief that there is more. 
And of course, this one's pretty easy because if any of us stop and think about it for a second, like, wait, God's an infinite God. I know that there's more of him than I already know, that I'm already enjoying, than I'm already aware of or have experienced yet. I know there's more. He has a lot more. He'll always have more. We stop and think about it, and I think we can overcome that hurdle. Of course, there's more of God for me to have. But the second part is to believe that he will actually give you more. That he wants you to to know more of him, experience more of him. Hebrews 11.6 says that faith believes that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Can I just tell you the reward that God gives to those who diligently seek him is more of him? His reward is very little about our circumstances. His reward is him. More of him. Could you believe him for more? God, there's more of you for me. And that faith is believing that if I diligently seek you, you'll actually reward me with more of you. want to give you a moment and in your own way for some of you this might take a little work for some of you this might come really quickly can you make a decision before God like God I believe you for more for more of you not only do I believe that there is more of you but I believe that you would love for me to know not just intellectually but relationally experientially more of you if there's some of you in this room and you feel like I've just struggled with like my spiritual hunger lately you know it's like I know I should be doing my quiet time or this or that or whatever and you're trying to be disciplined, but you know, like deep down, like there's some, the thirst has, has gone away. The hunger has gone away. Often the lack of hunger and the lack of thirst is when we lose the awareness that there's a lot more of God, folks. So much more. And when we hear the testimony, like, wait, there's more. It's actually God's invitation. I'm like, yes, and I want you to have more of me. I want you to seek more of me. Which moves us to that second part. I want them to seek me for more. I want them to believe me for more, but I want them to seek me for more. Would you be willing to seek him for more? It's one thing to to know and believe, yeah, there is more. It's, it's then another thing to say, yeah, I actually, I want to seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. I want that. I want to seek 
more. And there's two components to seeking him for more. One is renewal and two is revival. When I say renewal, I'm talking about your personal renewal. The more of him for you, not for your family, not for someone else. The more of him for you. Like, God, I want more of you. There will be no spiritual hunger. There will be no spiritual thirst where there is a person who doesn't, one, believe that there's more of God, and two, doesn't want more just in their own relationship with him. Seeking him for more is one, about renewal. It's your personal renewal. And two, it's about revival. Would I seek God for more for the masses? For me, yes. That's renewal. But would I be willing to seek God for the masses, a move of God's spirit for the masses? You see, revival is for the masses. Not all enter into it. But it's for everyone. Revival is for the masses, but it is not on account of the masses. It's often on account of very few who are willing to really seek him for it. Would you be willing to seek him for the more that you believe there is? One, for yourself personally. Two, for the masses. And don't ever forget. Those who, you know, Charles Finney, He's just the guy that showed up and and delivered the baby. The intercessors are the ones that really birthed the baby. Okay, we don't give tremendous amounts of credit to the midwife. Sometimes I think the people of God are like, well, I'll never be a Charles Finney. I'll never be a John Wesley. I'll never be a Charles. No. Don't you know, it's, all, it's that small group of people. Often their names are unknown. for which revival is credited to their account. They have an eternal reward because they were willing to seek God for all. I'd just like to give you a chance to wrestle with that before God and and say, God, am I willing to seek you for more? Believe you for more, one, but two, seek you for more. And if so, I want to invite you to just say, Lord, would would you just tell me what would it look like for me to seek you for more, for more in my own relationship with you, but also more of you for our church, for our city, for your world. I'm just going to give you a moment to ask him that question and listen to him. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Speak to us. most important things for you 
as an individual in a church body to prepare for a great move of God is to, for each of you to really know the answers to these two questions. What is the personal renewal that I am asking for? Because without the hunger, without the asking, you're not on the, the journey. And I will tell you, revival is for the masses, but the general admission ticket still has a cost. It's faith, hunger, and humility. Revival can come to your church, but without faith, hunger, and humility, you wouldn't even be able to enter into it. Hunger. What's the personal renewal that you're asking for? If you don't know that right away, I want to encourage you. Get that one landed, because that will reignite the spiritual hunger and thirst in your life. Second is, what is the prayer for revival that God has given you? What if you spent time with the Lord and said, God, what's, what's the prayer that you want to burden me with, that you want me to carry? For some, it might be a burden for the lost. For some, God might give you a prayer for the next generation. For some, God might give you a prayer that he would receive the glory and credit that is due his name. You become burdened by that. For some, it might be that the bride of Christ would be revived. It can come in a lot of different ways, but what if seeking him was to say, God, what is the part of the the yoke of revival that I could put my shoulders into and I'll carry that burden in prayer. I'll pray with tears. I'll pray with passion. I'll knock on the doors of heaven with this prayer until I see it come to pass. I just want to say a prayer for you guys. I know it's a lot to uh, wrestle on, and we're going to close with a little bit more time of worship. But so I want to invite you to stand up right now. And Lord, I want to pray for Oklahoma City Community Church. God, I thank you that this is a people who they've been, they've been pressing in, they've been praying at increasing frequency they're already seeing the reward they're already seeing breakthrough of your spirit moving and God I want to ask that in the next move of your spirit that this church wouldn't just hear about it they would host your presence. They would fully ride the wave. And Lord, we collectively pray for this city. God, we ask you to revive Oklahoma City. percent of the population attending church in Oklahoma City over the last 20 years has taken a drastic reduction. God, your bride needs to be revived here. We need you. There's no amount of church methods or clever preaching that's going to do it. So come, Holy Spirit, we depend upon you. We want you. We long for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all who agreed said, amen. Let's worship together.
We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.